So one thing that I see constantly, and I, I get it, I get the instinct is, okay, my music's out, like here's the Spotify link. And I'm not saying don't do that, but run a pre-order you know, on day one, you know, maybe run a special on day one that your album's out or your music or whatever, you know, share that it's on the website. That's where you're going to have the highest profit margin and collect the most data. Maybe on day two, let the audience know it's up on Bandcamp. And then maybe on day three, push out Spotify and maybe day four, Apple Music, because your audience wants to support you in, in the best way possible, but they don't know how unless you tell them. It's easy to get lost in today's music industry with constantly changing technology and where anyone with a computer can release their own music. But I'm going to share with you why this is the best time to be an independent musician and it's only getting better. If you have high quality music, but you just don't know the best way to promote yourself so that you can reach the right people and generate a sustainable income with your music, we're going to show you the best strategies that we're using right now to reach millions of new listeners every month without spending 10 hours a day on social media. We're creating a revolution in today's music industry, and this is your invitation to join me. I'm your host, Michael Walker. All right, so I'm excited to be here today with Emily White. So Emily is a partner at Collective Entertainment, and she's the founder of I Voted Festival. She's also the author of the Amazon number one best-selling book, How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. She hosts the book's accompanying podcast of the same name, and the podcast is the number one music business podcast globally. So talk about awesome, awesome people to have here on our podcast and great topics. Since I know a lot of people, a lot of musicians, like one of the number one challenges, I think, to, of being a musician is how do I make, how do I monetize my music and how do I take my artwork and turn it into something that pays the bills and it's sustainable. Emily's also been on the cover of Polestar Magazine and Billboard Magazine. It's been featured on Variety, Forbes, Rolling Stone, Pitchfork, CNN, Huffington Post, more. So she's awesome. And uh, that's kind of a long-winded intro, but Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to hear live today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Awesome. So maybe we can kick things off. I'd love to hear just a little bit about your story and how you got started you know, becoming a best-selling author of, of how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. Sure. I mean, that's a one-hour, you know, speech <laughs> that I often give, but I went to Northeastern University, studied music business, did a lot of internships as an undergrad, started working with a band called the Dresden Dolls when I was in college, began tour managing, worked at their management, management company when I graduated. Their manager, Mike Luba, and I left to go work at Live Nation Artists, which was a new half a billion dollar division of Live Nation that became Rock Nation. That that first in installment of Live Nation artists, though, fell apart in about seven months, even though we signed Madonna, U2, Jay-Z, Zach Brown Band. So I started my first management company after that when I was 25 in like 2008. We managed musicians, comedians, athletes, had a really great 10-year run. My longtime business partner left management. And so I partnered with a few Protégé founded Collective Entertainment in 2018, said to them on one hand, I'm just moving, you know, I want this to be whatever you want. On the other, I'm just moving our, our music and sports divisions over. And musicians kept wanting to get coffee and pick my brain. And I was having the same conversations over and over. And simultaneously, I've since retired from artist management, but the last few artists I took on for management, I was finding money for them left and right. So if that's happening to you know, national and international acts, then, then what about everyone else? So that's when I wrote my second book, How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams, turned that into a podcast. And also around that time, or at least around the time I wrote the book, we founded I Voted and I Voted Festival. 
and built the largest digital concert in history in 2020. We're just co coming off of I Voted 2022 and also laying the groundwork for some important local elections that are happening this year before we really go wild in 2024. So that's the shortest version I can give. Cool. Man, you, I can understand why that could be an hour-long talk. You jam-packed a lot of awesome stuff into, into a few minutes. Cool. Well, you know, it sounds like you know, you have a, a ton of experience from, you know, decades of experience in the music industry. And, you know, you've been able to write a book. You've also had a podcast where you've probably connected with a ton of really smart people and had discussions around these topics. So at this point, like you mentioned, you, you hear these patterns and you hear the same thing over, over and over and over again. So I'm curious, like when you've, what's the most common, what are some of the most common challenges and mistakes that you see artists struggling with when they first come to you? It's hard to say it's it's because it's very specific to them, right? Like I generally check them out online. You know, this was when those coffees and Zooms were happening. And I could see, you know, it's like, okay, well, if they haven't updated their social media in months, like it kind of looks like they don't care or they're not. I see a lot of really messy, clunky or non-existent website. But I think generally speaking, you know, it's really important for artists monetize their music before it's even out, right? Instead of just like, okay, it's out. Here's a Spotify link. I mean, I just saw Noel Gallagher announce his album for June. We're recording this in January. And you can buy, you know, you can pre-order it for $10 or up to $150 and include tickets. And I just saw Fall Out Boy do something similar. And I know these are huge artists, but they're doing it right. And you can only imagine the amount of revenue they're going to bring in. I don't know when Fall Out Boy's album is, but with Noel, for example, how much he's going to bring in and he doesn't even need it over the next six months before the record is even out, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing that I see constantly, and I, I get it, I get the instinct is, okay, my music's out, like here's the Spotify link. And I'm not saying don't do that, but run a pre-order you know, on day one, you know, maybe run a special on day one that your album's out or your music or whatever, you know, share that it's on the website. That's where you're going to have the highest profit margin and collect the most data. Maybe on day two, let the audience know it's up on Bandcamp. And then maybe on day three, push out Spotify and maybe day four, Apple Music, because your audience wants to support you in, in the best way possible, but they don't know how unless you tell them. Super smart. Yeah. So it sounds like what you're saying is that one of the mistakes that artists make is waiting until that album actually comes out to start talking about the album and, and to start offering it for sale. And you know, if they instead start to plan a bit ahead for pre-orders and they do exclusive releases and things leading up to it, that, that can help them more effectively leverage you know, all the energy that they put into recording the music in the first place. A hundred percent. And if you're hitting the studio, the home studio, and you don't have a clear vision for your release, which is totally cool and understandable, launch a Patreon or get active with, on your Patreon. You know, let your audience know like, hey, I'm recording. I want to bring you along for this journey. And that can be as, you know, intimate or not as you want. I totally understand like creating a cocoon, creating a space, but like throw out some teasers. It could just be like a photo of an instrument or something. Let folks know you know, what you're doing, even in a subtle way and give them an opportunity to support you. Awesome. So, you know, even if, even if you're an artist and you don't necessarily know your entire release plan, one, one thing that you can do is you just sort of document what you're doing anyways and the creative process of making the music and bring people in, in an interesting way, kind of how, in a similar way to how we're doing this interview live for the first time. Yeah. So, so these interviews, we would do them live anyways. But for the first time ever on, on this podcast, we're doing this one live and we actually have an audience 
of people who are are members of our membership community. And we'd be doing the podcast anyways. So it's like, might as well make an experience and bring people in to enjoy it live. And it sounds like what you're saying is that, you know, artists can think of it in a similar way when they're creating their music. If they're going to be creating artwork anyways, bring people behind the stage. And especially for your inner circle subscribers or on Patreon, you can, you can find ways to leverage what you're already doing, but kind of give people more access at the same time. That's exactly right. Cool. You know, one interesting thing that came up as you're talking about the importance of like the pre-order campaigns and not waiting until it's out in order to really start promoting it was this the study or maybe it was an article that that I read about how our psychology works as humans, like when something isn't available yet, but it's coming soon, the anticipation of it actually is more motivating than when it's actually available. And that's why when we have like a new TV show that's coming out soon or a new you know, book or a new video game, like people line up for so far in advance because, you know, we're just waiting for the date. We're waiting for the event. And there's something in our brains that actually the dopamine gets released before the thing is actually available. And that's kind of an interesting angle to, to look at what you're talking about with like making sure you have a pre-order campaign and build up anticipation to the actual, mm -hmm. the actual thing. And even anticipation within the pre-order, right? Like oftentimes something, you know, there'll be a pre-order and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to get the download or whatever. But then as each tier gets more enticing, suddenly I'm, I'm spending 50 or $100. So you also want to, you know, create exactly what you're describing for your fans. Cool. So along the angle of helping artists to discover these maybe untapped revenue streams, mm -hmm. what are some other maybe common mistakes or things that you, that you see artists struggling as it relates to being able to actually make a sustainable income with their music? Definitely. The number one missing revenue stream I see from artists of all ages is music publishing. And that's understandable because, you know, first we should define what music publishing is. I just did a live podcast taping on the episode, music publishing isn't scary or confusing. And one of my goals in life is for songwriters to be able to clearly define music publishing and understand how to get all their money for it. And, you know, most people understand what a record company's job is in theory, right? And there's two main rights in music. There's the recording side and there's the songwriting side. So a record company's job is to go out and push the recording and get it as much work as possible and then collect all the money that's owed to it. That's all music publishing is for your songwriting. So it's nothing to be scared of, to run to the hills over. I just want people to understand what it is. And then... To make sure you're paid in full, first, you have to sign up for, for your performing rights organization. So in the U.S., it's going to be ASCAP or BMI. Of course, there's GMR and CSAC. But I talk about ASCAP and BMI because they're open to everyone. And it really doesn't matter which one you go with. I have some nuances in the book, but nothing, you know, it's nothing that's going to make or break your career by any means. I mean, the short, short answer is if you know a human at ASCAP or BMI, go with the place where you know a human. You know, and it's interesting, like, I feel like this has been new over the past few years. I've been meeting quite a few songwriters and students that aren't signed up for ASCAP or BMI because, and then I ask why. I'm like, because if you don't sign up, you know, if you don't register your songs with two and a, in, within two and a half years, you get that money, which they didn't know, you know, when I told them. But their answer is, oh, I don't want to sign my publishing away. And I'm like, that's not what this is. This is regulated by the government. You either go get the money or you don't. But the reason, so that's that's weird and new. I feel like at the beginning of my career, and, and not that they aren't, but 
ASCAP and BMI were like very out there at conferences, like, hey, if you're 15, sign up, if you're songwriting, whatever. So that's the first thing. I have a podcast episode in season one called, you know, something like, if you are a songwriter, you need to sign up for your PRO. And of course, the PROs are country specific. So if you're in the UK, it's going to be PRS. If you're in France, it's going to be SSM. If you're in Canada, it's going to be SOCAN and, and so on and so, so forth. But the reason music publishing is songwriters' number one missing revenue stream is when you sign up for ASCAP or BMI, if you write a song 100%, they're going to divide it into two shares. The writer's share. So they're going to be like, if I was a songwriter, they're going to be like, okay, you're Emily White, the songwriter. And then the publisher's share. And they're going to nudge me and say, do you want to create a publishing designee? And so it's like, sure, I'll be Emily White Publishing or Emily White Music. So it's completely understandable that when I ask artists and songwriters, how are you collecting on their music publishing? The answer is, oh, I'm with ASCAP. Oh, I'm with BMI. And this is really important. If I drill anything else into brains, it's this. If you are just collecting your music publishing through your PRO and your songs are being covered, streamed, sold, any of the above, which is most people, then you are missing out on money. And so how you get that is through a publishing administrator like Song Trust. I'm a big Song Trust advocate because anyone can sign up for them, just like anyone can distribute their music through DistroKid or TuneCore or CD Baby or anything like that. Like Song Trust is completely democratized music publishing. You own your rights. You know, you keep 85% of the royalties. They take a 15% commission. Of course, you can do an admin publishing deal or, you know, do a co, you know, a traditional co-publishing deal, but not everyone has access to that. And Song Trust was, you know, set up by the founders of Downtown Music Publishing. You know, they have songwriters like Imogen Heap and J. Cole and John, John Lennon's catalog. So you have access to the same, you know, royalty rates and, and collection. So sign up for your PRO if you're a songwriter and then sign up for Song Trust or another publishing administrator. And then you are collecting on your music in full. And just like your PRO, if you don't sign up for Song Trust or a publishing administrator and register your songs with two and a half years, you don't get that money, you know? So I, I think that's really messed up. I don't know if that'll ever change. I feel awful. I mean, there was a, a guy at my live podcast taping the other day. He had had syncs on ESPN and things like that. And of course, was paid up front for the thing, but wasn't signed up for Song Trust or didn't have any publishing administration. And this was a few years ago. So he's he missed out on all those back end, back end royalties. The only thing that made us feel a little bit better was, you know, he's not that young, but he's 27. Imagine being 40 or 60 and learning this stuff, right? So music publishing is the number one missing revenue stream for sure. Wow. Super helpful. So, so we've had song trust on the podcast a couple of times and to totally, totally agree. So they're, they're awesome. And so yeah. it sounds like what, what you're saying is that really the two main things when it comes to music publishing, which is an untapped royalty stream for revenue stream for a lot of artists is one, make sure that you're signed up with a PRO. Yep. And then two, make sure, you know, if you want it to be simple and easy, go with song trust because they're yeah. established and, and they're trustworthy and, and they're you know, great, great at what they do, but you need to have some sort of publishing administrator to be able to collect those extra royalties. That's right. And, you know, if you had not, even, all and, not even extra, they're your royalties. Go get them. <laughs> right. Yeah. That is kind of, that is kind of funny. It's like they're there. And then if you don't collect them, what they get redistributed back to the people who are making the most money already, basically. 
Yeah, they go yeah. into what's called the black box and they just get redistributed to other artists and pay ASCAP's rent and salaries and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it would be good to, you know, to collect what, what you're owed. And awesome. again, to reiterate, I totally understand why it's confusing and it's not songwriter's fault because of that publishing designee thing. Like there was there was an artist that asked about that in the music publishing isn't scary and confusing episode last week when I had explained it. And I said, were you late? And they were like, yeah, we just got here because they asked the exact same thing. Like, oh, well, aren't I, you know, covered by my publisher share and ASCAP. So again, it's just like if you're creating a publishing designee and you're Emily White Music or whatever your publishing designee is, I mean, it's the same word. It's totally understandable that that's confusing. Absolutely. So and just to kind of put things in perspective too, like if, if someone's here right now or, or listening to this and you know, they've been putting this off for a while because they're like, oh, I just don't really know how to do this or what, like I need to figure that out. Like how much time or energy are, are, do we, they, should they actually budget for to get this done on average, would you say? Totally depends on the size of the catalog, right? Do you have yeah. two songs out? Do you have 100 songs out? But, you know, even hearing you say, like, budget your time, it's like it's budgeting your time to go get money that's owed to you. So I think it's worth it. Totally. And so I, I, put, I put it in because I, I think for for me, at least, and, and maybe for some artists, like if I know how to like time box or I know, oh, like this is going to take four hours it's like huh like it's four hours and i could potentially make you know tens of thousands of dollars from this like that's like a good use of my time nice if someone has like i don't know five to ten songs or let's just make you like 10 songs like what kind of time investment we're we talking to just like do the work and get get it properly cataloged i can't imagine it would take more than an hour to do that to get totally set up and everything and then it's like part of your process right like every time you write a song I'm just going to register in ASCAP. I'm going to let Song Trust. I'm good to go. All right, let's take a quick break from the podcast so I can tell you about a free special offer that we're doing right now exclusively for our podcast listeners. So if you get a ton of value from the show, but you want to take your music career to the next level, connect with a community of driven musicians and connect with the music mentors directly that we have on this podcast, or if you just want to know the best way to market your music and grow an audience right now, then this is going to be perfect for you. So right now we're offering a free two-week trial to our music mentor coaching program. And if you sign up in the show notes below, you're going to get access to our entire music mentor content vault for free. The vault's organized into four different content pillars. The first being the music, then the artist, the fans, and last but not least, the business. When you sign up, you'll unlock our best in-depth masterclasses from a network of world-class musicians and industry experts on the most cutting-edge strategies right now for growing your music business. On top of that, you'll get access to our weekly live masterminds where our highest-level modern musician coaches teach you exactly what they're doing to make an income and an impact with their music. Then once a month, we're going to have our Music Mentor Spotlight Series. And that's where we're going to bring on some of the world's biggest and best artist coaches and successful musicians to teach you what's working right now. And one of the most amazing parts is that you can get your questions answered live by these top level music mentors. So a lot of the people that you hear right here on the podcast are there live interacting with you personally. So imagine being able to connect with them directly. On top of all that, you'll get access to our private music mentor community. And this is definitely one of my favorite parts of Music Mentor and, and maybe the most valuable is that you're going to have this, this community where you can network with other artists and link up, collaborate, ask questions, get support, and discuss everything related to your music career. So if you're curious and you want to take advantage of the free trial, then go click on the link in the show notes right now and you can sign up for free. Uh, from there, you can check out all of the amazing content, uh, connect with the community, and sign up for the live masterclasses that happen every week. 
this is a gift for listening to our podcast, supporting the show. Um, so don't miss it out. Go sign up for free now and uh, let's get back to our interview. See, that, and that puts it pretty firmly in one of those, like one exercise I'd like to come back to usually once a year or so is like the time pyramid where you look at all the things you're doing on a daily basis and you yeah. kind of be like, which one of these are $10 an hour or $15 an hour tasks, $25 an hour, or $50, $100, $500, $10,000 an hour tasks. And it sounds like this pretty much, this if you're serious about making music and, and you really are looking at a long-term career, then this probably falls into one of those tasks that's like thousands of dollars per hour where it's almost like you can't, like, can't afford not to budget the time to, to do it. That's right. Awesome. Cool. So uh, how about, are, are there any, I mean, having the perspective that you have around like the decades of experience in the music industry, I'm sure you've seen a lot of shifts and a lot of, you know, some things that stay the same, that have never changed. And there's some things that have changed a heck of a lot. What are some of the new trends or things that you see happening right now as it relates to music revenue that you think are maybe ideas or opportunities to explore for artists right now? Yeah, this isn't necessarily super new, but I think it's because I have like two lists of revenue streams in my book. Like there's the list of everything that's owed to you if you write, record, release music and play live. Right. So it's like, go get that money. Then I have a list of what I call bonus revenue streams because you have to do something to do. I mean, you have to do something to get the money that's owed to you. But you know what I mean? Like it's not necessarily owed to you. And so, you know, one revenue stream I, I feel like people don't take advantage of is like, Look, like in the pre-digital era, and we're just talking about like what prior to 2005, prior than prior to 2000, you would have to sign with a label generally to be able to afford recording and then of course to distribute. And you would also be blocked from recording your own shows and doing anything with that material. And that's because they didn't want it to compete with like the CD or vinyl sales or whatever. Now, on one hand, the jam band community is amazing at this, right? The Grateful Dead have been doing that since the 70s and 80s and really cultivated just, you know, arguably the greatest fan community ever. But outside of the jam community, now that we can record shows and we we can record fa fairly easily, that's something I don't think artists are taking advantage of enough. And I totally understand why. Like, we're all perfectionists, right? So it's not a perfect recording or I'm not perfect or whatever. But you have to think about it from the fans' perspective. Like, you know, you said Cincinnati or I heard myself yell or whatever. And it's a really cool memento. So I do think artists should play around with recording their own shows and putting them on their website, even if it's for donation or for subscription. And you don't necessarily need to charge, you know, whatever amount. But I think that's a cool creative one that that I would love as a fan. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's a that's a great idea. And you know what actually came up as you, as you're sharing that was when when I was touring full time with my band Paradise Fears on one of our tours. I think it was with Andy Grammer. Mm -hmm. he, there was a, a part of the set that was always it was like a, a big hit, and that part we would have the microphone. We would come to someone in, in the audience, and we would have them like mm -hmm. sing into it and just go oh 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 oh. And little did they know we were actually recording when they sang into it and then we turned it into a sample and we, and we used it during the, the upcoming song. Right. And I was just thinking like in context of what you just shared, you know, if we had that recording of the show available for that one fan, especially, you know, they'd be like, oh my gosh, that's so valuable. I need to have that. Like, that's so cool. And it just kind of got me thinking that, you know, crowd participation in general 
And then like you're like recording that and being able to offer something where they actually co-created, they're a part of the artwork in some way is kind of an interesting angle to take and and maybe along somewhere along the lines of maybe there's an opportunity for creating like at the time of recording this, NFTs are kind of in this downswing and there's you know, a bubble that kind of popped around them. But I think there could be a really cool opportunity around creating NFTs from live shows and having 100%. a limited amount of them and, and doing something like that. I love it. Exactly. Cool. Well, speaking of NFTs, that would be an interesting conversation to have as it relates to music revenue and like an opportunity. And like I just mentioned, like at the time we're recording this right now, there's a bit of a downswing. There's a bubble that popped because crazy, you know, I guess gifts of, you know, of peanut butter aren't worth millions of dollars. So, so I think there's kind of this re this correction that's happening around NFTs, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts as it relates to music artists who are here right now that are maybe considering looking at creating NFT versions of their of their music and whether that's an opportunity or not worth pursuing. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think like I feel like lame saying new technology, but like with any new technology, it's not the technology that's going to make you successful or not. It's how you use it. Right. So I remember managing an artist 10, 12 years ago or something. And he was like, and so Twitter was kind of new and he's like, well, I tweeted I'm not huge yet. Right. As opposed to like how Zoe Keating uses Twitter or how Amanda Palmer uses Twitter. Right. Like they have really embraced the platform. And I think like anything, you should work with technologies that you feel good about. I mean, I've always been really open minded when it comes to tech. Like I will try everything. But yeah, people thinking like, oh, I'm just going to do an NFT to make money. Like that's totally not the point. There's definitely artists being really artistic and authentic and conscious about NFTs just just in the way they are with their art. But really, it's also the technology behind it, right? Like you talked about selling live shows as an NFT. I mean, it's really taking ownership into the next level, right? Into Web3. You know, the digital era on one hand is done. I already talked about that, right? Like you can record on your own, you can own your rights. But we also talked about ASCAP and BMI, and I know they're not going to do this anytime soon, but look, like if you and I write a song together and we agree it's 60-40 in your favor, but I put a typo in and put 50% or something, neither of us are going to get paid, right? So that's what's nice about smart the smart contracts on the blockchain and how you can get creative. Because I, I was saying that when, you know... I, <laughs> I love and hate to be this person. But when you're talking about, oh, the, you know, a fan saying on this and what if we released it? It's like, well, they would have to sign off on that, like from a rights standpoint, which I, I don't think they would have a problem doing. But when you talk about releasing the show as an NFT, well, you could like they could have five percent ownership in the in the show or something. Right. And then they could monetize on it forever. So just the transparency and smart contracts is really cool. And that's why I don't necessarily think like NFTs are are trendy or not trendy. Just are. It, it, it's like. This is really random, but I, I was on the swim team growing up and I remember like in the late 90s, one of my coaches, she was in her 30s. She's like, what, what's this WWW stuff I see on, on commercials, right? Like that's how it's going to be. It's like this. We can talk about this technology, but it's ultimately going to become ubiquitous. And then like our parents will just use Facebook, right? Even though like they didn't really know what AOL was when I was growing up, if that makes sense. <laughs> that's funny. Do you want to write a song while we're here? I'm not much of a songwriter. NFTs. Exactly. It's what you do. It's not the technology. There you go. There we go. We got something. Turn that into an NFT. 
Yes. Billions of dollars right there. Exactly. And they got everyone here to witness it live. All right. Awesome. So that that's such a great point. Yeah. That that the NFT, you know, that it's more of a reflection of your artwork and what you do with it as opposed yeah. to you know, the technology itself. So, so we're actually, so Modern Musician, part of the reason that, that I brought it up is, you know, we're, we're partnering with Flow Blockchain to, to create a music NFT platform. And the Flow Blockchain is, you know, environmentally friendly. It takes less energy to mint an NFT than it takes to post on Instagram. Wow. But I think there's, it's one of the things I'm most excited about. And yeah, I think this kind of, a, again, there's a downside with NFTs right now, but I do think there's a really cool opportunity to create a music asset that... I mean, sorry to interrupt. There was also like a dot-com crash, right? Like pets.com is a joke, right? And and I, I don't know, maybe pets.com is still a website, right? But I'm like, I don't know. The URL pets.com makes sense to me. Yeah, I, I, I think I missed the boat on pets.com or what exactly it's like happened. There was a dot-com crash and it, it was, it's just like NFTs and crypto now. Like it was a new thing in the 90s. Oh, and all these stocks went way up. And then everything crashed and pets.com was kind of the joke. But like, I bet if you go to pets.com, it's like a pet store chain or something, right? Yeah, so, but pets.com it, it is, a, is a pretty good, a pretty good domain. Right? But so pets.com, what, like it was overvalued and then like. And then... Yes. And people were like, so it, that became the joke, like, oh, pets.com, that's pretty worthless or whatever. But it's like, I don't know. You understand exactly what I'm saying. Wow. Right? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, pets.com is probably worth a fine penny right now if you want 100%. to own that, own that domain. Huh. Interesting. Cool. So how about any other, obviously there's kind of two sides of the coin. Like you just mentioned, there's the royalties that you know, you should be collecting because you're already doing these things anyways and you know, do this. And then there's sort of the maybe new opportunities, there's extra things you can do or different, different things. What do you feel most compelled by, or, or what do you think would be worth talking about right now as like a potential other, other topic to dive into related to one of those topics? Well, chapter one and episode one is get your art together, right? Like create great art. Otherwise, there's no point of going on to anything else you, you and I are talking about, right? So don't neglect mm. that, whether it takes, you know, months, years. And in, in my personal opinion, the music that connects and lasts for the long term, it's, it's, it feels weird to say, but it's like what we we're talking about with technology, right? Like it, what is heart to your soul, your, your spirit, like, you know, in musical form, that's what people are going to connect with in my experience, not making music that you think people will like, or it's for this label, or of course you hope people like it, but is it true to your heart, your soul, your spirit? That's, that's a great, great lesson. Cause yeah, sometimes it is easy to get, to get lost and chasing something or trying to be someone or trying to make some yeah. sort of impression when it, music and its purest form is really about expressing who you are. Cool. So this might be an interesting, I mean, th this might be totally down a tangential topic and you can totally just like cut me out if you're like, yeah, this is even worth, like, this isn't what I talk about at all. But as we were talking about technology and future like NFTs and, and as we're talking about artwork generation, uh, one tool that's just been like blowing my mind lately is chat GPT I and Dolly as well for like for prompt generation of artwork. And, you know, it's a so it's in some ways it's kind of scary thinking yeah. like, like, could we be replaced by AI? And then I've also heard of like, like there's a great meme. It's like, you know, AI isn't going to replace artists. Artists using AI are going to replace normal artists. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts as it relates to some of these new tools that are kind of cresting right now around AI and generation as it relates to artwork and 
and, and potentially as that relates to their ability to monetize their artwork using AI tools. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it from the artwork perspective. I think it's going to be like anything, right? Like if you're a musician and you're looking for album or single artwork, like you're probably going to want to work with a human. It doesn't mean like some 11 year old isn't just going to generate stuff and be like, oh, cool. But I would think generally speaking, you know, most people are going to want to work with a human artist, graphic designer. But maybe if it's like, you know, literally like a one person new startup company or something for class or what I mean, like, hey, I'm I need a logo for my presentation type of thing. I just think it depends on the use. And when it comes to music, like. It's a little scary when it comes to like sync, right? Like it's it's going to devalue sync for sure, because it's like, well, am I going to pay you or am, am I going to pay the machine a lot less? Right. But again, it goes back to creating great art and connecting with your fans, right? So I don't know, maybe like the average person will, you know, like listening to AI music, but most music fans, like it's what we we're talking about at the beginning of the episode, right? Like it's about the journey. It's about the connection. Like the art is what's most important first and foremost. And I don't know. It's like when you think of like, I'm not saying like these are everyone's favorite artists, but like, or some of my favorite artists, right? It's like, did anyone sound like Neil Young before Neil Young, right? It's like, those are the elements that make, you know, great artists unique. And then we become big fans of these people and get really into that. So as long as you make great art and connect with your fans, it's going to be okay. But like I said, I think we need to keep an eye on the devaluing of sync. And, and I know like these companies say like, oh, we get real musicians to like play the instruments or whatever. But yeah, that's the, that's the value where it's just going to keep being devalued, but like I said, create great art, connect with your fans, and you can't go wrong. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't really fully considered that aspect of the of the industry and how you know with supply and demand. Like, if it is easy to supply, you know, kind of sync music, and they're not necessarily looking for a specific artist to feature or like a, a song that's you know that's well known. What that might mean for creative, like video producers and whatnot. And think um, of it from a rights standpoint, right? It's just like. You know, a music supervisor isn't going to have to deal with, are there samples in this? Are there co-writers? Do I have to go get clearances from like five different people, right? Like, I'm not saying they shouldn't do that, but I just, I know how that works and it's fast. And so I don't know if people are talking about that, but that is so obvious to me, like when you ask that question. Yeah, cool. Yeah, w w one thing I'd love to pick your brain on is we talked a little bit about this earlier around like Patreon and having a membership type of subscription and giving people access to your artwork yeah. in a deeper way. So we, we have a software that we've been developing over the past year and a half called Street Team. And basically the purpose of Street Team is to sort of modernize the idea of having a street team. You know, in back Whoa. in the day when musicians would you know, like you would have fans would hit the streets and promote for them like. and kind of building this connection. Cause you know, why did fans do that? Like just for free, like but go like hit the streets and do this is because it was for the community and it's for the connection and for the you know the you know the access to the artist. And so a street team, one of the things that, that we build into it is what we call their inner circle. And it's sort of like a Patreon style membership with different tiers of access. And the music relics, which are like the NFTs, are kind of like tokens that grant access to their inner circle. And so I'd be curious to hear your, your thoughts around that idea of creating a membership community and monetizing that as like recurring revenue. If you have any, if you've seen anything inspiring, kind of like cool ideas as it relates to creating a inner circle community like that. Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. It's so important. We work with an artist named Julia Nunes. I mean, she pays all of it, all of her expenses through her Patreon alone. 
but she also has like a really intimate, genuine relationship with her fans, right? Or I was talking to Cam Franklin from The Suffers and she would have no problem with me saying, she's like, I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of the memes. I'm sick of the trends. I'm sick of everything I need to be doing or whatever. And like her band is amazing. And I'm like, you just need to create great art connect with your fans, collect their mobile phone numbers, collect their email addresses. And then I would pin at the top of your social media, you know, whenever you have a release out or a tour, throw an ad spend behind it if you can, but let people know, like drive them to the text message club, drive them to the email list because they want to hear from you and they're going to understand when you're just like, I'm too burned out on this stuff. And like, she, obviously this is public, so she'd be fine with me saying, but, saying it, but it's like, she also smokes like joints with her fans on Patreon. You know what I mean? Like they love it. That works for her. So just figure out what's genuine and authentic to you. It's, you know, what's right for Julia might not be right for Cam and vice versa. But yeah, that's what's going to connect with people for the long term, for sure. And think about stuff that you want as a fan. Like I said, it's like I want to hear like I, I've never lived in Cincinnati, but like Cincinnati in the live recording or whatever. So cool. Yeah. Julia Noons, I was trying to think that name definitely rings a bell. Maybe, maybe it was her Patreon or a Kickstarter or something I saw, saw with her, but that, that's fantastic. And oh my gosh, the, the strategy that you recommended, like, you know, look, always be driving people to an email list or a text message list so you say connect with them. That's actually a core part of, of Street Team as well. Is, is that, it's really like a, a CRM. So the CRM with an email, SMS and a website funnel builder. And that's one of the, the topics that we really try to, to encourage artists to build a community and to build a list that they, that isn't necessarily owned by, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or by a platform that, that isn't, isn't theirs. So you don't want to become like the next MySpace kind of thing. 100%. Uh, cool. Well, hey, this has been a lot of fun. Holy cow. Doing these live, we, we're probably going to have to do this more often because this is just, this is cool having a live audience here for it. And I feel like for, for me, it kind of like, it feels like it kind of took the the energy to a, a slightly different, a slightly different feel in, in a good way. So Emily, thank you so much for being a part of this. How about we go to our audience who's here live right now or any questions that came in beforehand? Again, this is the first time that we've done this, this type of live interview. And so... I think that we probably have a document put together with some questions that people are submitting either beforehand or during this. So maybe I know we have a few, a couple of members of our team who are moderating. Maybe you guys could share a link to that. Ari said, smokes choice on Patreon. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about just that, that access, right? Like the access of uh, the connection, the community aspect of, of, of artistry, you know, like music is always that's one of its main roles, right? It's sort of like it brings people together and it helps us find like-minded people who are on the same wavelength that we can smoke weed with. You know, that's what it's all about. Smoking joints on Patreon. Cool. I see a question here from Bill Romberg. So Bill said, hey, Emily, thank you for sharing with us. I'm new to home recording I just and I'm working on my first songs. Should I wait until I have several songs finished to tease and release them or should I get going immediately as I release the songs? Thanks to you both. Okay, so it sounds like the question in a nutshell is, you know, I'm sort of new to home recording. I'm working on some of my first new songs and I'm wondering about my release strategy. Like, should I release one at a time as immediately as they come out or should I wait for a bundle and like release them all at once or, you know, how, how can I start actually releasing these? I would definitely tease and, and release for sure. Cause, and I understand if artists aren't comfortable doing that, but Bill's asking the question. So that's, that's what I'm talking about. Like that could be part of your Patreon. That could be part of your pre-order, even if it's a demo or something. I'm currently hosting season two of my podcast as a live taping and interactive workshop. 
So Saturday's episode, you can stream on volume, is setting up your release and distribution plan. But like I said, like you are, you've nailed it because you're open to doing that. I would never want to pressure, you know, an artist who isn't. I totally understand keeping it under wraps. But yeah, if you're down to share and, and tease and like I said, take care of those hardcore fans in the early days, definitely do it. Awesome. Super cool. This is probably a good time to mention uh, for anyone who's listening to this right now that if you haven't checked out your guys' podcast yet, we're going to put the links in the show notes because, you know, it's a fantastic resource. And everyone that's listening to this right now, we should definitely go check it out and go follow. And, you know, one, one analogy that, that, that I think of when it comes to, I, I think this is relevant as well to like to musicians and, and being able to create a music scene together and collaborators and finding similar artists. There's two different mindsets you kind of have. And you know, it seems like early on, especially sometimes it's easy to have sort of a mindset of like scarcity or like there's competitors or like, you know, you shouldn't be collaborating with other artists versus, you know, seeing other artists as you know, collaborators and partners and, and a network that you can build. And it's something that, you know, that, that I think that having, gosh, I had a point to this that I was going to get to. And then like, I totally, I totally friend, lost you it. Know, it, it. You know, how about friend or FOMO, right? And maybe it's just, well, two things. One, if, if you're feeling FOMO, which is what social media is literally designed to do. I mean, it's easy for me to say, but like focus on your own green grass, right? Create great art, connect with your I just fans. remembered, I just remembered yeah, what ahead. it was too. I had a good analogy for it. And thank you for, thank you for covering me. See, here we are live. I, I knew that there was going to be at least like one moment where I said something like stupid or I slipped or something. So there, yeah. there we go. You guys got it here. So the, the thought was around, like, if you want to master a topic, you don't just go read one book and think yeah. like, cool, like I got it. Like the way you do is like you go and you read as many books as possible from multiple different angles and different perspectives. Sure. And, and sometimes it's when you read that third one, you hear it from this specific point of mm -hmm. view and you kind of see the patterns between, you know, different people talking about the same thing in a different way, but it really kind of clicks. And so the reason I brought that up was just that you know, I, I want to encourage everyone who's here right now, you know, to go to check out your podcast and to explore and like see what everyone is talking, what everyone's doing. Because I think we're so much, you know, like having different perspectives is so sure. valuable. And so with that being said, we'll keep on, keep on rocking and go to our, our next question, which is from anonymous attendee. Okay. So I'm someone who's anonymous. So maybe I should read the question before I ask it just in case. Okay. Okay. This is a fine question. It's, it's worth, it's okay to share. She said, uh, hi, Emily, if you're doing your own stuff for a hobby, is there a trigger point or a critical mass that you look for where you think that you're ready to go commercial and monetize? So I think the question in a nutshell was, you know, I'm right now I'm at this point where I'm making music and it's maybe a little bit more of a hobby, but, but I'd like it to be, to actually pay bills, or I'd, I'd like to actually start making an income for it. When's the right time to actually start pursuing that? Or do you think there's a, a, a critical mass you look for where it actually makes sense to decide, you know, now's the time to monetize versus just doing this as a hobby? Yeah. I don't really think it's monetize or not. It's more like, are you ready to share this with the world or not? And I know that's easier said than done, but it's really intuition, right? Like, but we've explored it, you know, like we had Justin Vernon of Bon Iver on season one for Get Your Art Together. We just had Vernon Reed of Living Color for season two on Get Your Art Together. And, and that's really what we're talking about there. Like, when are you ripe and ready to record instead of forcing it? So I wouldn't really think about like, when should I monetize or not? It's like, well, when does your intuition and your heart, soul and tell you like, yes, I am. I am ready. It, as opposed to like coming up to me at a conference, like, 
here's my music, but I have to work on my vocals or I need a new drummer or whatever. Mm. It's like when it's ready to share with the world, you should absolutely be monetizing. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Actually, it leads nicely into a question that I'm sure you have a great answer for. But as musicians, it seems like one of the challenges of being a musician is that the reason we got into the industry probably wasn't because we were trying to figure out what's the easiest, fastest way to make as much money as possible. Because if that was the question, then yeah. there's probably like easier path to take. Totally. Uh, while at the same time, like it's it is it's such a necessary part of being able to create artwork in a more sustainable way and be able to make a bigger impact. And so I, I'd love to hear your thoughts around sort of like the mindset of how artists and musicians in particular who may feel a little bit squeamish about about making money with their music because they don't want to feel like they sold, sold out or like they think it's wrong somehow to focus on making money or like it somehow sacrifices the artwork by by looking at that angle. Yep. How could how would you recommend kind of thinking about making money as a musician and kind of reframing that in a way that's more empowering? I mean, I don't think getting paid to do what you love is bad at all. Isn't is that the dream? And, you know, I think that's why I have the those two sets of revenue streams that we talk about in the book and podcast. It's like there are 10 that are owed to you if you are writing, recording, releasing and, and playing live. Right. So I don't I I, I've never met anyone that feels bad about that. And then the bonus revenue streams, like that's up to you, right? But but they're subtle too. Like I remember with the Dresden Dolls, because they're a keyboard drum duo, we used to get requests for sheet music. And this was not by design. It was authentic. When the singer Amanda Palmer was was putting that together, she basically, she was putting together like photos from the recording and handwritten lyrics and stuff. And it ended up becoming, I think it was literally called like, because the, the debut album is self-titled, like the Dresden Dolls album companion. I mean, it was kind of the bane of my existence to put together because it was like so stuff. And it was really expensive to produce. So it ended up being like a $50 coffee table book. And it was so gorgeous and such a cool fan experience that tons of people bought it who don't even read sheet music, right? So again, I think when it comes, I, I don't think, I know when it comes from that place of authenticity, you can't go wrong because that's what's going to connect with your audience. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's super helpful. And yeah, it seems like a an undertone of everything that you're talking about right now. And it just sub like a deeply understood from from experience, I think, of, that you have from like working with, with so many artists and, and seeing the value that they're providing for their community that maybe early on is hard to appreciate. Yeah. Is just the fact that like what you have is is really valuable and that people yeah. really want it and that you charging for that you making money is actually a, a sign of you providing value in that right. you know there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that but you know by focusing on providing value first and foremost that's really the reason that that you and all the artists you worked with had so much success is because they genuinely care about their community and about providing value to, to them and connecting with them exactly that's what it's all about for sure awesome well, hey, speaking about providing value, Emily, thank you so much again for coming on here to share some of the lessons and the wisdom that, that you've learned from you know, a really long career helping artists and being a part of the industry. So I super appreciate you and what, what you're doing, you being a part of this podcast. And I would love to connect to you on, I mean, for a street team, like the inner circle yeah, membership yeah. stuff, like it seems like there's there's some cool alignment there that that Definitely. I love, that about. sounds amazing. Awesome.
So uh, to wrap things up, for anyone who's listening to this right now, who is interested in diving deeper or learning more from your podcast, you know, mm -hmm. what would be the best next step for them to go to connect deeper? Yeah, definitely. So we're literally in the middle of season two right now. We're doing live podcast tapings that cover the entire modern music industry in order from recording to release and creation to execution. So that is January is wrapping up. It's normally every Saturday and Tuesday, but then in February through February 18th, it's going to be every Saturday and Monday because I have some speaking engagements and, and some other things going on. And we're also avoiding Valentine's. So yeah, come hang out. I've been solving musicians' problems in real time and it's been a blast. So you can check it out on volume.com and I dropped the link in the chat. Cool. Well, hey, Emily, this has been this has been super awesome. Thanks again. Let me if there's anything that you know I can do to reciprocate or, or help out mm -hmm. in terms of like podcasts, I'd love to have a co conversation or and, and connect more on, on Street Team. And again, for anyone that's listening or watching this right now, whether you're here live or whether you're watching the or whether you're listening or, or watching the, the replay, we'll have the links in the show notes for easy access. And if you're listening to this right now on our podcast, this is the first time I've ever actually said this because this is the first time that we've that we've been doing this live. But if you're if you're watching this or listening to this as a replay and you'd like to be a part of the live taping of it, we have our music mentor membership that is available. You can learn more about. We'll have a, a link on the show notes, but that's basically a platform that we've built to be able to connect with amazing people like Emily White and tons of experts in the music industry. Now, now hundreds of of music industry experts and create a network to be able to you know, provide value for for you and be able to connect you with industry experts. So, if that's something that you'd like to learn more about, you can click on the link in the show notes for Music Mentor. And otherwise, until next time. Yeah. Hey, it's Michael here. I hope that you got a ton of value out of this episode. Make sure to check out the show notes to learn more about our guest today. And if you want to support the podcast, then there's a few ways to help us grow. First, if you hit subscribe, then that'll make sure you don't miss a new episode. Secondly, if you share it with your friends or on your social media, tag us. That, that really helps us out. And third, uh, best of all, if you leave us an honest review, it's going to help us reach more musicians like you who want to take the music careers to the next level. The time to be a modern musician is now, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.